Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. This is an interview with OG Bitcoiner Peter Todd. Peter is well known as the creator of Open Timestamps, a protocol to establish document validity by committing hashes of document trees into Bitcoin op return transactions. He also provides feedback and criticism on Bitcoin improvement proposals and is generally considered a critical voice in the space for technical changes to Bitcoin. I've spoken twice with Paul Storks, the creator of the drive chain concept, a second layer scaling solution for Bitcoin that anchors to the Bitcoin blockchain and attempts to create a two-way peg between Bitcoin and a drive chain. Paul recently created a company, Layer 2 Labs, to promote the drive chain ideas. And one promotion he did was to ask Peter Todd to write a critique of drive chains. I ran into Peter Todd at the Adopting Bitcoin conference, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to get his personal feedback based on the paper he wrote for Paul. Since we haven't had a contrary view to drive chains on the pod, I think this should be really interesting. I am here with Peter Todd, OG Bitcoiner, professional contrarian, maybe. I don't know. I'm just inventing titles for you. You recently published a really interesting piece on drive chains. And in just a little context, Paul Storks told me that he was going to pay you for an article to get you to look at it. And he thought that this might change your mind about the feasibility of drive chains. Did it do that? Well, it uh, changed my mind for the worst. I thought it was even less feasible than uh, I did before I started uh, writing the article. Let's get into it. I think the story kind of begins with the Blockstream sidechains paper. Yep. And when was that published? That would have been, what, 2014, 2015? Like, pretty early. I mean, it's quite a bit before uh, SegWit, too. Okay, so sidechains are an old idea. Well, and I should point out, Blockstream sidechains was a modification of an even older idea. And what was the original idea? Well, so when you say sidechains, sorry, Blockstream sidechains, what you actually should be saying is Blockstream's pegged sidechains idea so that the sidechain could have the same currency as Bitcoin. Sidechains itself dates back all the way to like 2010 with Namecoin. Right. And that was always the holy grail, the two-way pegged sidechain, so that you could enter the sidechain, sending Bitcoin into the sidechain, and then sending sidechain coin out into Bitcoin. Notably, without uh, involving changes to the Bitcoin consensus protocol. Obviously, if you change the Bitcoin consensus protocol and just add the sidechain consensus, this is a trivial thing. But doing that without that change, that's where things get very difficult. Was that change imagined to be a general change so that multiple sidechains could be spun up? In a two-way peg situation, if you change the Bitcoin protocol and really make the sidechain part of the protocol, it's very easy to go send money back and forth because you've really done a block size increase, potentially with some different rules. The very, very hard part is figuring out how do you have coins associated with something whose rules are not validated in Bitcoin. And the goal there is you don't want to add more data to the main chain than the sidechain provides in scaling. And you also don't want consensus problems on the side chain, transmitting to Bitcoin and breaking yeah. things and complexity, etc. Yeah. And there's also um, definitely a motivation in terms of feasibility. I mean, if you can make this somehow work, people can make their own changes to their own protocols and yet still have the same security as Bitcoin. Whereas if you can't make this two-way peg work, then the only way to go and you know make new protocol ideas that are mined 
with Bitcoin hash power and also two-way pegged is to really just apply them to Bitcoin itself. And of course, as we know, changing Bitcoin is a long and involved process. And so I think this describes the motivation for sidechains because we have a way to anchor another protocol to Bitcoin. You bootstrap the sidechain user base because the existing Bitcoin user base can interact with it. And you can have whatever you want on the sidechain, big blocks, fast transactions, whatever. And I should note that the anchoring part is relatively easy depending on what you're trying to go do. A you know, really trivial example is my own open timestamps project, which sort of you kind of roughly say it anchors you know, timestamps to Bitcoin. But the way that math works is it's totally trivial because there's no need to have consensus over money, right? You're just creating a math proof. Similarly, the somewhat more involved example is like RGB, which wants to allow other tokens, other currencies, etc., anchored to Bitcoin so that Bitcoin is keeping the accounting of them secure. And while the math of that is a little harder, it's a relatively easy project. And it's the kind of thing that people can just do without permission. They don't need to change Bitcoin to allow this to happen. They can just do what they want, have their own rules, and then have those rules validated by um, people running the equivalent to like Bitcoin full nodes. But this doesn't give you a two-way pay. Definitely not. This is very useful for something like Tether, right, which has its own currency, but it doesn't directly let you go and move Bitcoin around, at least not without uh, much more advanced mathematical techniques like zero-knowledge proofs. And so we come back to the Blockstream sidechains paper, and you point out in your article about Paul Storks' drivechain proposal that actually there were two elements to the Blockstream sidechain. There was both escrow, so the ability to send Bitcoin into an address that is escrowed while it's on the sidechain, and then withdraw from that address when sidechain coins are sent back into Bitcoin, but also a fraud proof. So why do we also need a fraud proof? Well, the fraud proof is so that the escrow isn't just blind trust. In particular, the term Blockstream came up with to describe this type of escrow is a dynamic multi-membership system based on proof of work. And what that really means is we just trust miners go hold the money. And in that model, if miners want to go spend that money in a way that maybe the you know quote unquote owners of the money don't want, they're screwed. There's nothing they can do about it. The idea with fraud proofs is that somehow you would create a system where you could prove that a transfer was fraudulent. And frankly, Blockstream just hand waved around this. They kind of said, well, fraud proofs would be good. We're not sure how to actually do this yet, but we should do more research and figure out how to make that happen. What I'm told from Blockstream um, insiders who are around at this time is they thought this would be an easy thing to do, or at least feasible. And it turned out to be basically impossible. So they gave up on the idea of merge mine sidechains. And that's why Blockstream Liquid is a clear, trusted, centralized federation. When I looked into Liquid, there are surprising details that I think hint at the desire for something like a fraud proof, because there's a subset of the federation that can withdraw Bitcoin out of the Blockstream multi-sig address on the Bitcoin blockchain, but they can also only withdraw to specific addresses, and they include hardware well, HSMs. I got to point out, though, like, like what you're describing there is not actually something directly enforced in Bitcoin. Right? There's no mechanism in Bitcoin that prevents the members of the escrow from doing what they want with that money. Where the security feature comes in is Blockstream building in HSM solutions, or at least claiming they do. I mean, there's no way for us external to actually verify any of this is done. But that's what they claim they did. Right, certainly, because an open source HSM is a contradiction. 
Well, I mean, it's not even that. It's just, it's impossible to know what other people, what other hardware other people are running without trusting someone else to go tell you. If I were in Blockstream's case, or if I was any of the signatory escrow agents in the liquid sidechain, absolutely, I would want to be running this kind of hardware because I don't want to be in a position where I can steal money. You know, that's actually a very dangerous thing to do because someone who hacks you can go do that. So I'm sure they've done what they can to avoid this problem, but fundamentally it is a different trust model than Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. What I'm describing is there's additional complexity that they've designed to yeah. overcome the security weaknesses of this yes. model. Yes, and I think the key thing to say is all of this additional complexity, all of this additional security, that is implemented in trusted hardware. And drive chains, in theory, want to have a different trust model. And the trust model revolves around minor hash rate escrow. And instead of a fraud proof or a complicated non-consensus hardware security module, there's a concept of delaying withdrawals from the sidechain. Well, I, I got to point out, I mean, the delaying thing isn't the fundamental idea here. Fundamental idea here is that rather than put money in an address that any one miner could take, you require many different blocks to approve of a particular withdrawal. You know, one way to talk about it is it's miner vote. It's not that one miner can steal from the sidechain. It's that miners would need to collaborate. Not necessarily. Okay, do go on. That seems like a big problem. Well, it depends on how big the... When you say minor, you have to be specific. I mean, what what we really are talking about here is it's not that anyone who can create a block can withdraw. It's that over a certain period of time, at least a certain amount of hash power has to agree. The problem is when you say something like one miner, this isn't necessarily true. Right, because we're talking in a world of mining pools. Yeah, and you know, a good example here is given that there are two mining pools that collectively have 51% of the hash power, I mean, to be exact, I think it's like 60%, so... If drive chains existed now, those two mining pools could do whatever they wanted with money tied up in drive chains. And how long would it take for 60% of the hash rate to drain a drive chain? Paul Stark's proposal, um, that would be that they could go do this after I think it would work to be like, yeah, three months or six months. I think it was six um, in total. I see. But, you know, something like that. It's, it's a couple months anyway. And so this was a known issue with the drive chain proposal, which is outlined in BIPs 300 and 301. What is Paul's refute or like, what is his argument? How does how does he handle this? Or is that not even the argument that actually, to be honest, I was a little misled by was this idea that there would be blind merge mining. And my conception of how drive chains worked until I actually looked into it more carefully was the blind merge mining was a mechanism why people could go pay money, you know, in terms of transaction fees to influence how the drive chains operated. And Paul's drive chains proposal does have blind merge mining, but where I was wrong, where my understanding was wrong, was I assumed that the blind merge mining would also be related to the voting. And it turns out that's not true. You know, drive chains is purely a minor hash power vote. There's no mechanism to influence it other than by being, you know, by having control of hash power. And that's just it. And I think Paul's refutation is basically saying, well, I mean, obviously miners would go do the right thing. They have other incentives at play here. They have reputation, you know, they have potential fee revenue. But, you know, my argument there is not so much that those statements are clearly wrong. It's that in environments where any of this is happening and drive chains are actually working, mining has to either be very centralized or, you know, it's likely that drive chains will fail in nasty ways, in which case the drama of this failure will cause problems in Bitcoin itself. And when you say for this to work, mining would have to be very centralized. 
are you imagining a single huge mining pool and they're too corporate and don't want to be like sued by the drive chain developers or something like that? Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of scenario you need for drive chains to reliably work. On the other hand, if you look at the other possible scenario where there's a lot of different mining pools out there, they aren't necessarily all run competently from Bitcoin's point of view. That's totally fine. Like, it's great if there's, you know, a thousand mining pools and like, if not all of them are run competently, it doesn't actually matter for Bitcoin because Bitcoin's incentives are extremely strong and Bitcoin works very well, even if, you know, mining pools don't necessarily cooperate with each other and so on. The problem is in that scenario, it's likely that drive chains will suffer all kinds of issues. First and foremost being getting your money out because miners have to approve of a drive chain withdrawal and there's no other mechanism. If they were implemented tomorrow, I'd say the most likely failure mode would actually be people's money would get stuck and the price of the coin on drive chain would become decoupled from Bitcoin and start crashing because people realize, oh, shoot, there is no way I could get my money out. Paul has made the argument that drive chains through blind merge mining could be a massive source of minor revenue because a drive chain would likely want, so there would be a drive chain transaction in every block and the fee revenue for this would create a long-term incentive for miners to keep the chain. Yeah, I'd say that's clearly false. And the problem is that drive chains have no ability to have a block size limit. Without a block size limit, there's no reason to pay other than trivial fees. You know, there's just no mechanism without block size limits for fees to actually amount to anything. And that's what we see on other coins. You know, other coins that are not um, running into block size limits just don't have not, you know, anything beyond trivial fees. That's exactly what would happen. And unfortunately, there's until you had a block size limit to drive chains, I don't see a way around that. And I don't think Paul has articulated a way around that other, otherwise, other than saying, well, obviously, miners would get together and say the fee revenue has to be high, right? It would set high transaction fees. But that's assuming a cartel, right? The only way to artificially increase transaction fees in the absence of a, of a fixed limit on block size is by getting a cartel together and saying, yeah, we're not going to allow miners to undercut us. I guess another aspect of the drive chain fee conversation is that if blind merge mining was merged as well as the drive chain bit, then I could run a Bitcoin node and I could run a drive chain node and I could be a quote unquote drive chain miner by constructing drive chain blocks and then offering that block uh, through, through whatever mechanism as a Bitcoin transaction to miners and giving them a fee to mine that block. So I would be a drive chain miner paying Bitcoin miners to mine. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Um, in fact, it works the opposite way. So assuming for sake of arguments that somehow there is significant fee revenue, what actually happens is opposite where you have a real cash flow problem if you're trying to be a drive chain miner, a blind drive chain miner, because you get this money coming in in the form of drive chain fees, which is not the same thing as Bitcoin. And you now have to go pay out Bitcoin fees. You need a big war chest of money to be able to go do this. You as a small entity will never be able to go pull this off because you're going to lock up your money for a very long period of time without any any reason to think, you know, any guarantees that you'll ever get it back. I guess what I'm thinking is, I, I see that issue, obviously, because the withdrawal from the drive chain is uncertain, because under Paul's proposal, you need miners to all act the withdrawal transaction, and it takes three months. But what I'm getting at is, wouldn't the Bitcoin mining pool be the natural producer of drive chain blocks? Well, now we have a centralization problem all over again. Right, because why do they have to share the drive chain coins with me uh, in exchange for Bitcoin? Yeah. They can just take the drive chain coins. Yeah. 
Honestly, I think the blind merge mine thing was just kind of an add-on Paul made to try to make it a more platable idea. Like, I don't think it, there's any reason to think it will actually work. Um, it makes much more sense for mining pools to directly mine drive chains. But in that environment, you're really forcing mining pools to install a ton more software, to use up a lot more bandwidth, to, you know, use a lot more disk space. And I think the key thing being to get themselves involved in a lot more complexity. And that adds a lot of overhead. Every single new piece of software you have to install and manage is expensive. And that's more centralization of mining. Absolutely. You know, we would really, we're working very hard to make it possible to have decentralized mining pools. Apparently, Luke Jr. is uh, working on this. I might have maybe said a little more than I should have, but uh, I, I've heard that those rumors and uh, there's something called Braid Pool, um, which exists. There's also P2 Pool, um, which for technical reasons doesn't work very well right now. Although I personally used to use B, um, P2 Pool back when I was mining Bitcoin. And these ideas work quite well. I mean, you run a Bitcoin node, you install this extra piece of software, which isn't very hard, and you point your hash power at it, and you are actually acting as an agent of a mining pool directly. You are the one constructing blocks. And if you get lucky, your block is found, it really was your block. And this enormously decentralizes block production. It's an extremely good thing to have. It will avoid a lot of issues, issues around censorship, AML, KYC, and Bitcoin, etc. But that's completely incompatible with drive chains because it's already hard enough to convince people to run one piece of software, let alone, you know, 50. There's no way I in my, I in my basement with a relatively small hash power operation, am I going to make money off drive chains? It's just not going to happen. But if drive chains are big and are profitable, I will kind of be forced to because it's the only way I can compete with other other miners. I think you've articulated quite well the sort of fee issue of a quote-unquote drive chain miner who receives drive chain fees and has to pay out Bitcoin to mine blocks and that this would logically create a low price for this drive chain token because it, it might be uncertain when or if you could convert it to Bitcoin. But what if the drive chain token actually did have value such that it was significant enough for a, a miner to be interested in. Well, then we're not talking about a drive chain anymore. We're talking about a thing with a separate token. I guess what I'm getting at is Paul pointed out to me that Litecoin and other Bitcoin fork been, are being merged mine even now. And there have even been cases when a bug in the sort of uh, merged mine chain software interfered with uh, with a block template and, and you know and basically a mining pool lost out on a on a block subsidy a block reward and so what i'm wondering is if there is any economic value on the drive chain is mev also a concern on top of all of these other things or is that just a small potatoes for the audience uh you're talking about minor extractable value and the fact is, I mean, that's, that is a, a concern regardless of uh, drive chains or, you know, merge mining and so on. But fortunately in Bitcoin, there really haven't been very many opportunities for MEV because the sort of protocols that create those opportunities, for the most part, don't exist on Bitcoin. There are some small exceptions, but they're pretty insignificant at this point. And we've been careful to avoid creating those incentives in Bitcoin. MEV is a bad thing. We, you know, you do not want MEV to exist. That causes a, endless problems in Ethereum and Bitcoin. We want to avoid that. Now, that's not to say it's impossible for people to go create these problems. But you know, this is why you go and argue that hey, drive chains aren't a good idea. You know, certain types of exchanges on top of Bitcoin aren't a good idea, etc. And you just avoid creating environments where it becomes a bigger problem. It sounds like you've looked deeper into drive chains, found more to be concerned about. Well, I mean, you know, I got to point out too, I mean, as part of his article, I looked deep into enough to go find some really stupid cryptographic mistakes too. 
you know, the particular way that blind merge mining works is actually kind of busted. It may not be uh, worth getting into in this this discussion, but you know, I was actually quite surprised to see the um, particular, you know, these kinds of mistakes getting made. And you know, I wrote that up on my blog post. But I think the fact that I seem to be the first person to notice this really says that very few competent people have ever bothered looking at drive chains. I think people kind of read the summary and say, "Yeah, that's that's a silly idea," you know, and then they go work on something more important. I appreciate the summary of your research into drive chains. It sounds like Paul is probably not going to be contracting you for more outside uh, critique. At the same time, I guess I was personally interested in the concept, you know, in a sort of naive way, because there is this idea of scaling Bitcoin somehow, somehow taking transaction, taking data, moving it off chain and somehow anchoring it. The goal of drive chains is something that lots of people want. The problem is drive chains just don't work. And, you know, there's lots of ideas we've had that we would really like to go work. And then someone goes and point some holes in it. And we realize, yeah, that isn't possible. You know, I personally, I mean, I had my own um, idea that was in competition with Lightning, Fidelity Bonded Banking. And Lightning is just endlessly better than my idea. So yeah, nobody's using my idea and that's fine. Lightning was just better. In order to avoid this conversation being a total downer, (laughs) do you have any sense of where scaling is going to come from or what projects currently seem worth investigating and lightning and rgb those are the two main approaches that get really good scaling as part of when you know where i say lightning i'm also talking about extensions to lightning such as uh, arc is you know a recent one that's come out um you know you get all th- kinds of things like channel factories coin pools etc cetera, etc cetera. maybe the way i could go put it is lightning's approach is to say let's go use justice to prevent people from doing something bad. And there's many, many different variants of that idea. And then the RGB approach is saying, let's go have people who actually want to go and validate a coin for themselves, validate the coin for themselves. And you kind of call it the difference between active security and passive security. Active security, like Lightning, where you go do something in response to someone doing something bad, so that that never happens in the first place. And passive security, where you go and validate and you get yourself in a position where you know that this math proof, if you will, was true. And the only trick there was scaling is figuring out how to split up the math proofs. And that potentially, um, with zero knowledge proofs, can go very, very far. You know, we may be in a position in the future where we can extend zero knowledge proofs to Bitcoin itself. And that would allow you to split up the consensus so that not everyone would have to validate the whole consensus. Rather, I could go and prove to you that a coin I had without proving to you the full data is actually real. And in that environment, well, block size can be a lot bigger. I see, because you've moved data off chain. There's just well, a proof. I haven't really moved it off chain. It, what I've done is I've changed the meaning of what on chain means. Right? Like right now to validate a Bitcoin block, you have to have the whole thing. With certain types of zero knowledge proofs, we can go modify that and potentially get to the point where you're only having to validate part of the chain and then collectively we validate the whole thing. Is this the sort of scheme that is driving something like UTXO? Uh I wouldn't say directly. I think UTXO is doing something a lot simpler and less ambitious than what I described. But you know, some of these techniques have overlap. Certainly, like UTXO has the idea of you know, applying Merkle trees to consensus. And a lot of the stuff I just described, that is part of how it would work. But I don't think there's, there's a strong overlap, you know, like this more of a, a spiritual connection. Well, I really appreciate your thoughts on these questions. And is there 
Anything you'd like to say? Anything you'd like to point people to? Well, I think the number one thing I'd say to people, and I'm surprised at how many people haven't taken this advice, is actually download a lightning wallet and try it. You know, there's a lot of Bitcoiners who go endlessly theorize about the stuff, but never actually use lightning. What's your favorite Bitcoin wallet? Phoenix is the most obvious one, I think, these days. Um, It's straightforward. It works very well. You know, it has good routing and it's non-custodial. With Phoenix, you are actually on your phone having a real lightning channel and you do hold those coins. So yeah, certainly if you haven't already, try Phoenix. Well, great advice from Peter Todd. Actually, we've been looking for a lightning wallet to sort of without nuance recommend. And that sounds like the correct choice. Phoenix is a great option. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you have any feedback, please reach out bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com at bitcoindadpod on Weapon X. I'm also a Noster if you can find me. And we have an Elements chat room maintained by Chris at Jupiter Broadcasting where we have ongoing discussions. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast. We don't have any sponsors or ads. So if you think that you got some value out of the conversation and you want to support ongoing production, please boost in and be sure to include a message. We read all of those messages and they mean a lot to us. Thanks for listening. This has been your Bitcoin dad. See you next time.